Chapter 14 The Third Coming In economic life, happiness is relative, not absolute. What matters is not what you have, but what you have relative to those around you. Studies have shown that most people would prefer to live in a world in which they make more than their neighbors, rather than one in which they just make more. They would choose a salary of $50,000 in a neighborhood of people making $25,000 over a salary of $100,000 in a community of people making $200,000, according to a Harvard School of Public Health survey. This psychology is behind the hand-wringing in the United States and Europe over the decline of the West because the rise of China and India threatened to reduce the relative prosperity and power of the West, not its absolute prosperity. While the West's status and leverage relative to the rest of the world are very much at risk, its prosperity can only increase in absolute terms, because richer neighbors make better customers. Yet the prospect of living among rapidly prospering neighbors proves so unsettling that Westerners fear the turning point is coming much faster than it really is. In an early 2011 Gallup poll that asked Americans to identify the world's leading economy, 52% said China, and only 32% cited the United States. An astonishing misperception. China's economy is still a third the size of the U.S. economy and the average Chinese income is just a tenth of the American average. The awe of China is not entirely unreasonable, given recent events. After all, China's growth has averaged 10% since 1998, never dipping below 8%, despite a series of global crises. Investors now view a growth rate of less than 7% in China as a hard landing. And today, polls show that more than 80% of global fund managers believe China will have no hard landing in 2012 or in the foreseeable future. As George Orwell once observed, whoever is winning at the moment will always seem to be invincible. China's economy has been rising for so long, it's not surprising that its aura of invincibility has grown to outsized proportions in the Western imagination. In the 14th century, Chinese maps showed China occupying most of the planet, and the page with the other continents rendered as tiny places and squeezed into the margins. In the first decade of the 21st century, the Western view of the world was starting to look like that old Chinese map. Most Westerners would say that China's landmass is considerably larger than that of the United States, when in fact it's so similar that geographers dispute which is bigger. China's looming shadow is about to retreat to realistic dimensions. Over the next decade, growth in the United States, Europe, and Japan is likely to slow by a full percentage point compared to the post-World War II average, owing to the large debt overhang. But that slowdown will pale in comparison to a 3 to 4 percentage point slowdown in China. 
The big story will be that China is too big and too middle-aged to grow so fast. And as it starts buying less from other emerging nations, the average pace of growth in emerging markets is likely to slow, from nearly 7% over the past decade to the 1950s and 1960s pace of around 5%. To people living in rich nations, the dispiriting sense that everyone in the neighborhood but you can afford a new pool will diminish greatly. The sense many Americans have of being rapidly overtaken by Asian juggernauts will be remembered as one of the country's periodic bouts of paranoia, something like the hype that accompanied Japan's ascent in the late 1980s. The miracle is younger than it looks. Emerging markets have become such a celebrated pillar of the global economy that it's easy to forget how new this concept is, at least from an investment standpoint. The first coming of the emerging markets dates to the mid-1980s, when Wall Street started to track them as a distinct asset class. First labeled exotic, a name that scared off investors, Many of these nations were opening their stock markets to the outside world for the first time. Taiwan opened in 1991, India in 1992, South Korea to small minority shareholders in 1993, followed by Russia in 1995. It was a chaotic period of discovery and excitement for foreign investors, unleashing a helter-skelter 600% boom in prices, as measured in dollar terms, between 1987 and 1994. Over this seven-year stretch, the amount of money invested in emerging nations rose from less than 1% to nearly 8% of the global stock market total. The first coming skidded to a close with the series of economic crises that struck from Mexico to Turkey between 1994 and 2002, when emerging stock markets lost almost half their value and slid back to represent 4% of the global total. Even more strikingly, over the duration of the period from 1987 and 2002, the emerging market share of global GDP actually fell from 23 to 20%, and the one big exception was China, which saw its share of global GDP double to 4.5%. The story of the hot emerging markets was really about one market. As recently as 2002, Many big investors often wondered why they should bother investing in such a marginal class of countries at all. The second coming began with the global boom in 2003, when emerging markets really started to take off as a group, and their share of global GDP began a dramatic climb from 20% to 34% today attributable in part to the rising value of their currencies, while their share of the global stock market total rose from under 4% to more than 10%. The huge losses of 2008 were mostly recovered in 2009, but since then it has been slow going. We are now entering the third coming, 
a new era that will be defined by moderate growth, the return of the boom-bust business cycle, and the breakup of herd behavior. Lacking the easy money and the blue-sky optimism that has fueled investment, the stock markets of developing countries are set to deliver more measured and uneven returns. Gains averaged 37% a year between 2003 and 2007, and that is likely to slow to an average annual pace of 10% in the coming decade especially because many emerging market stocks and currencies are no longer outright cheap. The Breakout Nations The growth game is all about expectations. People are always asking me, so what if India slows from 9% to 6 to 7%? That is still three times faster than growth in the West, right? Well, for India, that slip would initially feel like a recession because it is one of the poorer nations in the low-income group. The economies with per capita income under $5,000. And every Indian has come to enjoy the levitating sensation of rising fast from a low base. The bounty of higher incomes and new jobs. New Delhi has built its budget based on the revenue it could expect at 9% growth. And the prices in the Mumbai stock market are based on what Indian companies would be worth down the road, if the economy continued to grow at a pace of at least 8%. In 2011, therefore, a growth rate of 7% was enough to trigger a bear market in Indian stocks. Since the last decade was so unusual in terms of the wide scope and rapid pace of growth in emerging markets, much of the world suffers from unreasonable expectations. Nations with an average per capita income ranging from $5,000 to $10,000 have come to expect at least 5% growth. And those at risk of falling short include South Africa and Malaysia. Nations with an average per capita income from $10,000 to $15,000 expect 4% growth. And those at risk include Russia, Brazil, Mexico, and Hungary. In countries with an average per capita income from $20,000 to $25,000, growth needs to remain in the 3 to 4% range, and Taiwan may not sustain that pace. The exceptions in this category are in the Gulf, where the populations are growing so fast, at an average annual pace of 2.6% in recent years, much faster than other emerging regions, that the Gulf economies need to grow much more rapidly than 4% to keep per capita income rising. The happiness and satisfaction that nations derive from growth are relative not only to expectations, but also to population, and to how rich they are in the first place. So which are the breakout nations of the coming decade? The answer depends on which wealth category one is looking at. In the $20,000 to $25,000 income range, the nations with the best chance to match or exceed the expected pace of 3% are the Czech Republic, the safe haven from the chaos in Europe, and South Korea, the manufacturing barrier buster. 
in the very large $10,000 to $15,000 category. Possibly one nation has a chance to match or exceed the 4 to 5% pace of the last decade. Turkey. As Prime Minister Erdogan frees the Muslim heartland to resume a normal role in the economy. Poland also has a shot, in part because it needs to hit only the low end of the range to feel like a fast-growth nation, since its population is not increasing. It is difficult to spot a breakout nation in the $5,000 to $10,000 class. The one with the best shot is probably Thailand, where a new leader could heal the capital versus countryside divide. The next group includes the Big Kahuna. China, and it is a very special case. The breakout speed for countries with an average per capita income of $5,000 or less is 5% or faster. But expectations are higher in China because almost every mainstream economist still projects the Chinese economy to grow at 8 to 9% in the foreseeable future even though its per capita income is about to pass $5,000 and enter the next category. Growth expectations in China are as high as in poorer nations like India. It's impossible to break out when expectations exceed the maximum possible growth rates of the relevant income group. There are, however, many legitimate breakout nations in the under $5,000 income class. Indonesia the commodity economy that works. The Philippines, with the new Aquino in charge. Sri Lanka, riding its huge peace dividend. Nigeria, where an honest leader has ended a string of spectacularly corrupt ones. And a number of nations in East Africa, where an economic union is taking shape. It is far from certain that all the nations on my list will actually break out because it is so difficult to grow rapidly over an extended period. A recent paper from the Harvard political economist Danny Roderick catches the reality well. It shows that before 2000, the emerging markets as a whole did not converge or catch up to the developed world at all. In fact, the per capita income gap between advanced and developing economies steadily widened from 1950 until 2000. There were a few pockets of nations that did catch up to the West, but they were limited to oil states in the Gulf, the nations of Southern Europe after World War II, and the economic tigers of East Asia. It was only after 2000 that emerging markets as a whole started to catch up. But as of 2011, the difference in per capita incomes between the rich and the developing nations is back to where it was in the 1950s. The uneven rise of the emerging powers over the next decade will reshape the global balance of power in countless ways, reviving the self-confidence of the West, dimming the glow of recent stars like Brazil and Russia and making the apparent threat from petro-dictators in Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America disappear like a passing meteor. The upside will be just as dramatic, with possible new giants emerging from relative obscurity. 
There are currently 15 economies worth more than $1 trillion a year. And the next two nations in line to join that elite group, probably within the next five years, are Muslim democracies with increasingly market-oriented economies, Indonesia and Turkey. The implications of that development could be profound, both as inspiration to many Muslim nations that are struggling and as an object lesson to Westerners who think that Muslim modernity is an oxymoron. The Rediscovery of the West Though post-crisis America is starting to look like post-crisis Japan in the 1990s, when massive debt led to the long stagnation that persists to this day, differences will come to the fore as several of the big emerging markets slow. Far more than Japan, the United States remains flexible and innovative, the center of creativity in technology, still wide open to people and ideas, with the youngest population in the developed world, and a very competitive, cheap currency. Restoring balance to American self-perceptions, based on a reasonable calculation of weakness and strength, will have healthy political ramifications, reducing the pressure on Washington to raise new barriers to global trade and to cast China as a growing geopolitical and military threat. There are already signs that this is happening. In August 2011, Boston Consulting Group published Made in America again, a persuasive argument for why U.S. manufacturing is poised for a comeback. China is suffering from a strengthening currency and rising wages, land prices, and transport costs, while the United States has a falling currency, stagnant wages, and rapidly rising productivity. Boston Consulting Group predicts that by 2015, these shifts will have wiped out China's competitive advantage, sparking a U.S. factory revival, particularly in low-cost states like South Carolina, Alabama, and Tennessee, and especially for sales to North America. Already, companies like Coleman, Sleek Audio, and Peerless have started to move manufacturing facilities back to the United States from China. The same reversal is possible in some parts of Europe, where the spectacle of a more normal China should also produce a collective sigh of relief and a rediscovery of basic strengths. This is especially true in Germany, the only rich nation that has managed to defend its manufacturing base from foreign competition and to expand production in emerging markets as well. German reforms early in the last decade slowed the rise in labor costs to the lowest pace in Europe, while German companies also moved to open plants in low-wage countries of Eastern Europe. The result has been an astonishing jump in the export share of German GDP from 24% in 1995 to 45% in 2011. Relatively low unemployment rates and the world's second largest trade surplus, which is spilling over into a rise in consumer spending. No corresponding decline in the sense of triumphalism in China will occur, 
because that feeling has never taken hold. Though the rising national pride of the Chinese and their strong support for the communist government are well documented, the Chinese are also far more realistic about the likely future course of their economy than foreigners are. Polls show that the Chinese are much less likely than any other nationality to believe that China is destined to be the number one economy in the world anytime soon, and are more likely to understand the possibility of pitfalls ahead. As the rich world comes to view China and other big emerging markets more in the way they now see themselves, well behind the West in per capita GDP and with much still to do, the edge will come off the growing sense of East-West rivalry. What the Misery Index shows. The return of inflation has already taken some of the gloss off the big emerging markets over the past couple of years. Too many of these nations were trying to sustain the boom of the last decade and were reluctant to withdraw the monetary and fiscal stimulus, cheap interest rates, and heavy public spending they put in place following the 2008 financial crisis. Money alone does not foster growth, and much of that excess money flew straight into higher prices. Average emerging market inflation rates rose from 4% in 2009 to 6% in 2011, gradually feeding the cancer that has stopped many rising economies and taken down the politicians who run them. Between 2010 and 2011, Russia, Brazil, and China have all seen inflation accelerate by about two percentage points. And Vietnam, the dysfunctional communist outlier, has seen it jump nine percentage points to 18%. The misery index popularized in the United States during the final ugly years of the Jimmy Carter administration in the late 1970s, has started to edge up all over the emerging world. It is a simple index, the inflation rate plus the unemployment rate, and its rise into double digits under Carter was seen accurately as a harbinger of his political demise. To be sure, emerging markets have a much higher tolerance for pain than rich nations. The Emerging Market Misery Index averaged over 100 as recently as the 1990s, before plummeting to 10 when the recession of 2008 began. Since then, it has crept up to about 12, and in some countries, considerably higher. One of the sharpest turns has come in China, where the misery index rose from 2 in 2009 to 9 in mid-2011, mainly because of higher inflation. Little wonder that controlling inflation became the Chinese government's top policy objective for 2011. The recent rise in the index is also contributing to a revival of hostility against incumbents in India and making it very difficult for the successors to political rock stars like Lula in Brazil to retain that popularity. The return of inflation will not be felt everywhere to the same degree, and there is a strong case that the threat is only short-term. 
One piece of the prevailing optimism argues that inflation can be contained at least much more effectively than it was in the past. And indeed, there are new bulwarks against inflation. In the early 1970s, global inflation surged above 10% and remained high throughout the decade as higher oil and food prices triggered a vicious price-wage spiral. In today's globally integrated world, production can move swiftly to the lowest cost factory, trade flows freely, and it is difficult for workers to demand wage increases that are not supported by productivity growth. Furthermore, at least some key central banks are now officially committed to controlling inflation, rather than just pumping up growth by printing money, and many are increasingly independent of the political process. Even where politicians do have a say, many societies have already learned how painful double-digit inflation can be, making the fight against inflation politically popular. Since 1990, when New Zealand's central bank became the first in the world to declare explicitly that fighting inflation would be its number one priority, 20 more have followed suit, and many nations including Poland, the Czech Republic, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Turkey, have seen marked declines in inflation after adopting an inflation target. Since the 1980s, the share of emerging markets running inflation in the double digits has fallen from 47% to 7%. In the long run, that trend seems likely to continue. In the coming years, we can expect the least misery in breakout nations and the most in nations where slowing growth will drive up the unemployment measure in the misery index rather than the inflation component. In these nations, which include Russia, South Africa, and Brazil, the fallout will land hard on incumbent politicians who have ridden the boom of the last decade to high popularity and a series of election victories. Volatility strikes back. When asked why evil exists in the world, the Indian saint Ramakrishna answered, to thicken the plot. The same could be said of recessions. While most economies tend to expand steadily over time, recessions are the twists that add dramatic tension not only by imposing pain, but also by setting the stage for reform and resurrection. Now the global plot, which had thinned out in recent decades, is about to thicken. Between 1861, the first year for which records are available, and 1982, the United States was in recession about a third of the time, meaning that it was in a state of constant renewal. Since then, it has been in recession only 11% of the time, taking much of the drama out of economic and political life, too. The good times have been lasting longer, and the bad times hitting less hard, with happy ripple effects for economies and leaders across the globe. The impact has been huge. From 1982 to 2007, the United States enjoyed unusually long expansions and unusually short and shallow recessions, 
compared to the averages established over the preceding century. The three upturns in this recent period lasted six to ten years, nearly triple the historical average of three years. And the two recessions saw economic output fall barely one percent over two quarters, much less painful than the prior average of 2.5 percent stretched over five quarters. The data for the rest of the world are sketchier but similar. Since the early 1980s, in the developing nations, the economic cycle of recovery and recession has typically run for around eight years, double the historical average of four years. In the United States, the flattening of the business cycle came to be known as the Great Moderation. And at its peak, debate raged about whether this comfortable new environment was here to stay. The agony of 2008 ended that wishful discussion. Before the crisis, recessions had moderated in depth and length, due in large part to the almost limitless ability of the United States to fund growth by borrowing, mainly from the rest of the world. Globalization was forcing companies to become more productive, producing more for less, and lowering the threat of inflation. Low inflation made it possible for the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low and to cut rates even more at the first sign of a downturn. Expansions lasted longer. Recessions hit less sharply. The United States became addicted to the sweet rhythm of a long debt-induced business cycle and to its booster effect on the stock market where bull runs were extending from an average length of 22 months before 1982 to 37 months in the subsequent years. But all the while, credit was building up in the veins of the economy. Now the U.S. government is running out of syringes. Its massive stimulus programs have driven government debt up from 40% of GDP in 1980 to more than 90% of GDP in 2011, a level that can weigh down on growth. With short-term interest rates close to zero, the Federal Reserve has run out of easy money to pass around, though it still has tried. Its inventive crisis policy of quantitative easing has done more damage than good because much of that easy money found its way into speculative investments, the bulk of it in commodities like oil and gold, rather than new lending by banks to new businesses at home. The end result is likely to be a return to shorter expansions and sharper recessions in the economy, as well as shorter bull runs in the stock market, and not only in the United States. Emerging markets have much less debt than the United States, so they can still borrow to fight off a downturn. But the surge in global trade and capital flows has connected them to the United States more closely than ever. Today, U.S. manufacturers buy 15% of their parts and materials from emerging markets, up from 9% just 15 years ago, and these connections are still growing. Trade between nations is rising much faster than income within nations. Back in 1960, every percentage point increase in global income 
was accompanied by a 2% increase in trade flows. Today, every percentage point increase in income is matched by a 4% rise in trade. The increasing integration of global supply chains is a major reason why developed and developing economies began to expand and contract in sync over the last decade. It is also why emerging markets, too, can expect a shift to more frequent downturns. If the historical record cited above is any guide, the expansion phases are likely to shorten by a half or more to around three years across the global economy. The Upside of Hard Landings Volatility may be scary, but it is not necessarily bad for long-term growth. The great moderation of recent decades did nothing to increase the long-term growth rate of the United States nor did the sharp booms and busts of the late 19th century do anything to slow the overall explosion of U.S. economic growth. What we have often seen is that nations with the wherewithal to pay for a soft landing out of recession frequently end up sinking in this expensive pillow. This deep preference for soft landings is understandable, but it is equally clear that hard landings often force reforms that set the stage for rapid growth. This has happened repeatedly in recent years, from Sweden and Finland in the early 1990s to Asia after the 1997-1998 financial crisis. Economist Andy Shia, a well-known expert on Asia, has created an interesting taxonomy of winners and losers after the crisis citing South Korea for pushing perhaps the most aggressive reforms. Shia argues that if South Korea had not suffered a hard landing in 1998, it probably would not be a member of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a club of the top industrial nations today. On the other hand, Malaysia imposed capital controls to avoid the brunt of the hit in 1998, never reformed its system, and is falling behind its neighbors. Shia is most critical of Japan, where he says the greatest bubble in human history burst in 1990, with no pain at all, like falling off Everest without breaking a bone. At its peak, Japan accounted for 40% of all the property value on the planet. But instead of collapsing, the price of real estate slowly declined at a 7% annual rate for two decades, ultimately falling by a total of about 80%. There was never a major round of foreclosures or bankruptcies, as the government kept bailing out debtors, ruining its own finances. China, intriguingly, is moving from the hard path to the Japanese path. In 1998, China was still largely isolated from the capital flows that carried the Asian contagion. But it pursued tough reform anyway, streamlining state-owned enterprises and privatizing the real estate market. That put China in a position to create factories to the world. But it faces tougher circumstances now.
In China, both the banks and their corporate customers are typically owned by the government, which controls most of the economy. And the government never forces its own debtor companies to liquidate. The debtors just hang on, hoping another round of easy credit will put them back in the black. Since 2008, total debt has risen from 115 to 170 percent of GDP, and the richer that China gets, the less likely it is to be hard on itself. The growing ties between nations over the last decade have made every one of them less inclined to allow their trade partners to go under. For all the current discussion about debt defaults. Stemming from the crisis in Greece, the reality is that default has largely disappeared from the international economic scene. In their book, this time is different. Carmen Reinhart and Kenneth Rogoff chart how surprisingly commonplace default used to be. In a typical year between the 1920s and 2003, nations representing at least five to ten percent of global income were in default, and that proportion spiked up to forty percent during the Depression and World War II, and close to fifteen percent in the late 1980s. But since 2003, when the synchronized global boom began. The share of defaulting nations has dropped from five percent in any year to zero. No rich nation wants to suffer a default, which can lead to a hard landing, or to risk the spillover effect of a hard landing among its neighbors. The worst-case scenario, however, is not countries that accept no pain when they reach bottom, but those that take no risks on the way up. I was always amused by the sense of accomplishment that exuded from Indians when they dodged the Asian crisis of 1998, having grown only tepidly in the preceding years. I still feel that same lack of urgency today in many emerging markets, from India to Brazil, which interpreted the boom of the last decade as a credit to their domestic policies, not as a function of global free money flows. That complacency will be a huge handicap as the world economy enters a new era. In this slower and more volatile world, the growth rates of countries and companies will start to diverge. So the third coming will be about understanding emerging markets as individual nations. This is as true in politics as economics. For example, the concern in the West. Over the rise of the major emerging markets as a political bloc, coming together in BRICS-type summits is greatly exaggerated. The core of this group—Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa—consists of nations with competing political interests. They are a group of commodity exporters versus importers, and trade links among them are surprisingly limited. Although China has rapidly growing trade and financial links with the other four, those four don't do much business with one another. Moreover, all will be hard pressed to find a common program for growth in a slowing world economy. The economic role models of recent decades are going to give way to new models, or perhaps no models, 
as growth trajectories splinter off in many different directions. In the 1990s, global growth averaged 2.7%, powered mainly by the United States, before spiking to 3.7% from 2003 to 2007, driven mainly by the big emerging markets. In the next decade, global growth is likely to return to the less than 3% pace of the 1990s, but few, if any, nations are going to look like heroes. In the past, Asia tended to look to Japan for lessons on how to get growth right. Nations from the Baltics to the Balkans tended to look to the European Union, and nearly all countries looked to some extent to the United States. But the debt crisis of 2008 has undermined the credibility of all these role models. Economies that were once clamoring to get into the Eurozone, like Poland, the Czech Republic, and Turkey, wonder if they want to join a club, so many of whose members are struggling to stay afloat. Japan's recent mistakes are much more visible than its past successes. So it's not clear why anyone would study Japan's economic model more closely than Korea's emergence as a manufacturing powerhouse. The Mantra of the New Era Creating the right conditions for rapid growth is more art than science. And while it can look easy when a nation gets a few key reforms right, or when foreign investors get excited about a country, it can all fall apart fast. Some of the biggest growth stars, such as China, South Korea, and Taiwan, started on the path to success with unconventional policies that defied the usual free market prescriptions, subsidizing or granting tax breaks to favored industries, promoting free trade only in special zones, and providing investment guarantees. Even getting the basics right, stabilizing debts and inflation, is no guarantee that business will rise off this foundation. Since there is no blueprint for what will work, says Roderick, our baseline scenario has to be one in which high growth remains episodic. My own rules of the road offer many possible scenarios that could derail breakout nations or move laggards into the breakout class. If the leadership in Indonesia slips and strives to create a family dynasty as in Argentina, the country could quickly lose its economic momentum. If China lets its currency appreciate too fast, it could remove one of its key cost advantages and precipitate an even deeper slowdown. On the positive side, if India once again starts generating new billionaires in productive industries like technology, rather than politically connected sectors like mining and real estate, it will be clear evidence that the country is correcting for its corruption and overconfidence problems. If Thailand's new leadership can succeed in bridging the yawning gap between Bangkok and the rest of the country, it could ascend into the breakout category. And if money begins to come home to Russia, it will be a sign that the state is no longer intimidating private enterprise into fleeing the country. What is increasingly apparent is that not all emerging markets will be breakout nations, 
and their paths will vary significantly. Already in a sign of increasing differentiation at the micro level, since 2010, there has been a greater flow of emerging market investment. Two firms that sell consumer goods and get high ratings for solid management, and away from state-run companies and firms with unstable revenues. These trends are bound to continue and to be a defining feature of the third coming. Investors will become increasingly discerning, not only in their choice of companies, but also in their choice of countries, and will treat emerging markets as individual stories, not a homogeneous class. No nation can hope to grow as a free rider on the tailwinds of fortuitous global circumstance, as so many have in the last decade. They will have to propel their own weight, and the breakout nations of the new era will take their mantra from a Latin proverb. If there is no wind, row. This concludes the reading of Breakout Nations in Pursuit of the Next Economic Miracles by Ruchir Sharma. Copyright 2012 by Ruchir Sharma. This book was read by Alan Sklar. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with W.W. Norton and Company, Incorporated, and was produced in 2012 by Blackstone Audio, Inc., which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audio, Inc. If you would like to obtain a monthly update telling you about new releases, call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.blackstoneaudio.com. Thank you.